Thanks for reading the word of God to us. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here again. If you don't know me, my name is Matt, and I'm the assistant minister here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. Now, some of you might be wondering why I'm up here, not Steve, and why we aren't continuing the theology series. Uh, that will continue, but I'm going to be preaching three sermons on the book of Isaiah first, and then Steve will jump back into the theology series. So this three-part series is actually focusing on Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. The sermon series is called Crushed, Salvation in the Suffering Servant. Next week's passage is thought of as the climax of the book of Isaiah. Its prophecy of the suffering servant is the key figure and It is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah reminds his readers how God is faithful to his promises. These sermons are going to focus on God's rescue, salvation, and purpose for his people. So our big questions for each sermon are going to be, how can God rescue? Next week, How can God save? And then the final week, how can we know that God is for us? And the answer to all these questions is that he does it through the suffering servant. So the big question we're going to look at today is, how can God rescue? And to start, I want us to begin by thinking back just a couple years to the year 1999, Now, most of you here were alive in 1999. Some of you actually weren't. But if you weren't, you will probably have heard and remember the Y2K bug. Can you remember leading up to New Year's Day? There was a genuine concern about what was going to happen. As the clocks ticked over to the new year. And the problem was is that the computer programmers, it was all their fault, because they simplified the years to two digits, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, and nobody knew what was going to happen when it turned over from 99 to 2000. There was a genuine fear leading up to New Year's Eve 2000. Can you remember it? On your screen, you'll actually see one of the January 1999 covers of the Times magazine. Look at that. The end of the world. It's a great depiction of what the feeling was like around the world. Some of you guys may have had this genuine fear. And if you didn't necessarily fear it, you may have just been a little bit worried about it. I know I was. I also knew people who bought two pallets of toilet paper and stored it under their house so that they were prepared for whatever would happen. And I thought at the time, they are insane. Who would buy two pallets of toilet paper and store it under your house? Well, turns out they weren't insane. They were just 21 years too early. (laughs) Now, I want to ask you this question about the Y2K bug. When was the last time You feared it. When was the last time you worried about it? Have you worried about it this week? Last week? 
anytime this year. I'm pretty sure that nobody in this room has worried about it or even thought about it, most likely, in the last 20 years, probably since about January 1st, 2000. Now, what about the nation of Babylon? Now, remember, the nation of Babylon was a nation that God chose to punish his people, to judge his people. When was the last time you feared the nation of Babylon? Here in Australia in 2021, Babylon doesn't make the news. It's of no concern to us. And if anything, we would probably say, well, the nation of Babylon is a great example of how nations rise and nations fall. But at the time that Isaiah was writing, there was a real fear of the nation of Babylon. And there was a real fear around the Y2K bug as well. Today, we live with real fears about the world in which we live. We can't escape them. So let's pray that God would help us contextualize our fears and that the impact they would have on our lives as we look at what this says to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guide us through your word. Help us to receive it and understand it this morning. Give us the faith we need to believe it and to use it to glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. Now, when we transition from a New Testament book like we've just finished in Colossians and move to an Old Testament book of prophecy like Isaiah, we need to stop and consider who is Isaiah prophesying to and why. We need to understand the audience back then and what they are going through so that we can understand what God is saying through Isaiah to them and then apply it to our situation now. And in the process, we need to remember that God does not change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 reassures us. It says, for I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, because God does not change, God's word does not change. His word is eternal. So what God has to say to Isaiah, through Isaiah in 700 BC, is the same as what God has to say to us now in 2021, provided that we understand it in the sweep of God's sovereign plan. So the process is, consider the audience then, see how it applies through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then stop and ask, what is God saying to us now? So Isaiah's vision was not just a vision of what was going on in that present day, but a vision of what is happening in God's sovereign plan. His message is relevant to us because it's not about how God rescued his people back then only, but it's about how God rescues his people throughout history, how God saves his people from their own sinfulness, and how God will take his wrath that was meant for us and place it on the suffering servant. God declares that he is for us 
He cares for us, and his steadfast love will never depart from us. So let's quickly consider what has happened to the people to whom Isaiah is prophesying. Now, firstly, Israel was divided into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, remember, was actually conquered and taken away by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians. Now, God allowed these nations to conquer and take these people into exile to bring out his judgment Isaiah prophesied against Israel's rebellion, against their sinfulness in forsaking the Lord. In Isaiah, we see the nation of Israel beaten up time and time and time again in the hands of their oppressors as a result of the continual judgment of God. And in today's passage, we actually pick up in the history of God's people in a time when they have rebelled against him and God has used the Babylonians to judge them and they have been taken away into exile. And in Isaiah, we see that Israel has come under the full wrath of God. It says in this passage that they have drunk from the cup the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Now, people often question how a loving God can show his anger, his wrath, in the form of judgment on his people. But I actually believe the more important question is how can God not be angry How can a loving God not act against human wickedness? And in today's passage, we see that even though he has justly judged them, they find themselves under his wrath. God also comforts them at the same time. See uh, chapter 51, verse 12. Read with me. It says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And then skip over to chapter 52, verse 9, where it says, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Now, in the first passage, it says, I I am he who comforts you. It's actually in the present tense. He's actually doing it. And here in 52.9, it's in the past tense. I have comforted you. So he's saying, I am comforting you and I have comforted you. He is saying, I am your comfort. Now, consider for a moment the paradox that God is comforting his people because they fear man. He is comforting them even though they have forgotten him and they have turned away from trusting him. And in his anger, he comforts. The people are proud and they are arrogant and they do not trust in his promises. And so they fear man. 
They're fearful of a created object. And they've forgotten the Lord, who in verse 13 reminds us that he has stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And in 15, God also reminds them, read with me, it says, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. And continue reading in verse 17. He tells them, wake yourself, wake yourself, O stand up Jerusalem, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And he repeats it again, 52, verse 1, it says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. Why is God telling them to wake up? What's going on here? Well, it's because they have drunk to the dregs the cup of staggering. They have come under the full wrath of the Lord. And for them, this means that they have had to suffer through devastation and destruction, famine and sword. And they have become like an antelope in a net. Look with me at verse 20 and imagine this antelope caught in a net. It says, your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like a land antelope in a net. Now here in Helensburg, we don't have antelope, but we do have deer. And behind my house, pretty much every night, I have these deer come and visit my grass. And on the odd occasion, when you look out there, you see one of those big stags with the antlers. Just imagine those antlers being caught in a net. And regardless of which way it moves, to the left or the right, it can't escape. It just gets more caught up in the net. And this is where the Israelites find themselves. Like an antelope or like a deer caught in a net. And it was because, the second half of verse 20, because they are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And not only are they caught in the net like an antelope, here in this passage it describes them in verse 23 as being tormented. And they are told to bow down. It says, bow down that we may pass over you. And you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. They find themselves laying flat on their back with those who torment them just walking all over them. No wonder they are afraid. I would be too. And the main problem is they don't understand what God is actually doing for them. So they look to the nations and are afraid. They don't understand what God is doing for them, so they look elsewhere for comfort. Now, it is one thing to lay helpless on your back and call out to God and say, what are you doing, Lord? What's going on? It's another thing when you're laying helpless on your back to remember 
who our Heavenly Father is and to trust in his promises and that his word is eternal and believe that he has provided the way for us to be his children. While we are flat on our backs, he is comforting us. When we find ourselves in this position, Isaiah reminds us that we are not to fear man. We are not to focus on the worries of this world. He wants us to focus on the Lord, our maker, who comforts us. And so God is calling his people who have been suffering under the hands of the Babylonians. He's calling them out of captivity and back to Jerusalem. He tells them to awake, awake. And then in 52 verse 11, he actually says, depart, depart, go out from there. The Lord is telling the Israelites that their time of their punishment is over. He has taken the cup of wrath from their hands. And the Lord is calling his people out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. This is a second exodus for the Israelites. A second exodus, not from Egypt, where God rescued them the first time, but it's actually another exodus from Babylon where he's rescuing them again. And this second exodus is so similar in a lot of ways of the first exodus, but it's actually different in one main way. And that's what I'd like to look at. I'd like to look at the difference between these two exoduses. In Egypt, before God told them to leave, he told them to take a lamb and slaughter it to kill it and put the blood on the two side door posts and on the lintel of their houses where they lived. And read with me what happened in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. It's going to come up on the screen for you. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. The blood of the lamb of the first exodus was a sign that would be remembered forever. Here in the second exodus, when they're leaving Babylon, there is no sacrificial lamb. There is no blood on the two doorposts and on the lintel. Because God is not interested in providing another sign. He's already done that previously in Egypt. He is only interested in providing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Read with me part of next week's passage. I want to start in chapter 53, verse 6. Can you please read with me? 53, verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There is a reason why there is no sign in the second exodus here. Because in this very next passage, God reveals to his people that he will provide a servant who will suffer and die. Not simply as a sign like the lamb, but as a fulfillment of that sign. And just like in Egypt, when the lamb was slaughtered, God's servant, like a lamb, will be slaughtered. The Lord will put on that lamb the iniquities of us all. The iniquities of the people in Babylon will be put on that lamb. The iniquities of the people in Jesus' day will be put on that lamb. And the iniquities of us here today will be put on that lamb. God will place them on his servant, the lamb that will be slaughtered. And the Lord does it to rescue his people. To rescue those who were in Babylon. To rescue those in Jesus' day. And to rescue us. God is rescuing his people who are laying flat on their back, unable to wake up. God is rescuing his people who were like an antelope caught in a net. But it costs him dearly. Read with me chapter 52, starting from verse 3. It says, For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, And the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually, all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak here I am. When the Lord rescues his people from Egypt, he spoke to them through Moses. And we know that Moses asks him. And he says, Lord, who should I say you are? And the Lord replies, tell them I am who I am. And in our passage today, Isaiah helps us understand that there will be a time when God will no longer speak through prophets, it says, Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. And Jesus refers to himself in the I am sayings. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In these I am statements, they're all found in the book of John. Jesus claims that he is God. 
He is the God of Israel. He is the God of the Old Testament, and he is the God who rescues his people. He is God in flesh. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who Isaiah is prophesying about when he says, my people shall know my name. Here I am. How can God rescue? Well, he can rescue because he came in the flesh as the suffering servant. Now, you might remember back in our previous uh, sermon series on Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where in it, Paul writes, he says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God made a way to rescue his people who were lying flat on their back or like a deer caught in a net. A people who have lost sight of his faithfulness to keep his promises. They have lost sight of his hands who are covering them to protect them. And they have lost sight of the comfort that he provides. They have done this because they fear Babylon. They fear man. Now, we also live in a fallen world, and we are surrounded by this world. We are surrounded by Babylon. As believers, our experience here and now today is very similar to that of the Israelites, whom Isaiah was writing to. But unlike the Israelites, we know the suffering servant by name. We know that this here is not heaven, that we are not home. And we are waiting for the day when Jesus will return again and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. But now, at the moment, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of things in this world that cause us to be afraid. At times, we may feel faint-hearted. We may feel like there's a sense of helplessness. We need to take what Isaiah says to us here as both a warning and as a promise of great comfort from the God who comforts us. The warning is that the people here have been rebuked because of what they have done, how they have acted towards their maker. They have been proud. They have been arrogant. And they've put their trust and hope in man and not in God. And when you put your trust and hope in man, you fear man. And so firstly, we must realize that this is a warning to us not to be arrogant. Do not be too proud to trust in God, to trust in his faithfulness. His salvation is eternal. Do not be too proud to receive help, to ask him, the almighty God who established the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, Do not be too proud to say to him, I need your comfort. 
I'm flat on my back. Will you rescue me? And if this is you here today, stop and ask him for help. And have this as a reminder to you that our God is a great God who longs to comfort you. And we should also find great comfort in these words. Look again with me at Isaiah 52, verse 1. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your garment, beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For thou shalt be no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Shake yourself from the dust, it says, and arise. I am here to comfort you. Wake yourselves up and depart. Isaiah does not want us to stay laying flat on our backs. He wants us to be comforted by the Lord, our maker. And it says, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And so that's what Isaiah wants us to remember. He is the one who stirs up the sea and controls the waves. He is the one who puts his words in our mouth and protects us, and he covers you in the shadow of his wings. And he says to you, you are my people. Do not fear man who dies, who is made like grass. Do not be afraid. Do not be proud. Do not be arrogant. Do not look for comfort in this world that will pass away. Find comfort in the Lord your God who has rescued his people by providing the sacrificial lamb, laying on him the iniquities of us all. It was this lamb that was led to the slaughter for us. Look one more time at Isaiah 51, verse 22. Halfway through verse 22, it says, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. Isaiah tells the Israelites that God has taken away the cup that is the wrath of the Lord and has put it in the hands of your tormentors. But this is not the end for this cup. You might remember when this cup returns. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus is arrested, he prays to his father and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This cup of wrath that was meant for us was taken and given to Jesus, the suffering servant, to drink on our behalf. And as he drinks it, our sins are laid on him. As he drinks, he provides the way for us to be rescued to be redeemed by the almighty God who says, here I am. You are my people, and he is waiting to comfort you. Now I'm going to give you a few minutes to reflect on what has been said, and if you'd like to ask a question on slido.com, you can do so using the hashtag HBSP, and I'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you.